Fantastic. Well, today is All In Sunday. A couple of times a year, we carve out space to share something of our story and invite people towards an all-in spirituality, holding nothing back. To borrow the language from our vision statement, to recklessly give ourselves away to God, each other, the people of King's Cross and the people of London. And to do that, I'm going to be sharing some lessons from the teaching of the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. And as a snapshot of that letter, there's going to be three points. So for the four of you that I've seen making notes, this is for you. Here are the three points. We're going to look back with gratitude. Damalola was just singing that over us to remember, to remind ourselves of the character and nature of God is faithfulness. We're going to then look forward with faith and we're going to act now with generosity. Now, before we launch in, let me remind you of the context of this letter to the church in Philippi. Um, this city in northern Greece, the church there were experiencing heavy persecution for following the way of Jesus. Now, Paul himself is experiencing heavy persecution. He writes this letter from prison in Rome to encourage the church. Now, what's nuts about this letter, historically, it's known as the epistle of joy, because Paul, on 16 different occasions, invites the church towards joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. I'll say it again, rejoice. I'll say it again. Hey, there we go. So 16 different occasions. Now, he's, he's in prison, right? But he's not grumbling. He's not moaning. He's experiencing fullness in Christ. And he says to the church in Philippi, you can experience it too. Joy isn't dependent on your experience, your circumstances. It is found in Christ Jesus, which is incredible. So we're going to look back with gratitude. This is one of my favorite verses in Scripture. As Paul says to the church in Philippi, he who began a good work is going to carry it on until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to bring it to completion, what he began. Now, the story of the church beginning in Philippi, it's an amazing story. You can read it in Acts 16, but I know some of you are just desperate. Tell me the story now. Tell me the story now. Fine. I'll tell you the story now. So there's three miracles that take place. Miracle number one, Paul arrives in Philippi. He decides to go for a walk by the river. He finds some ladies and he thinks, well, this is an incredible opportunity to preach the gospel. So he begins to preach the gospel and Lydia comes to faith and basically says, look, my household need to hear this message. Now, in the context of the first century, a household isn't mum, dad, 2.4 kids and a Labrador. We're talking potentially dozens and dozens of people. So Paul goes to Lydia's household, preaches the gospel, and the whole entire household come to faith and are baptised. That's a good beginning, but it gets better. There was this demonically oppressed slave girl. And because of this oppression over her, um, she could see into the future. Now, her masters, she was a slave. Her masters thought, we can generate some serious income from this. So they basically used her to generate income by her seeing the future. Now, she hears the gospel. She comes to faith. She's delivered from this demonic oppression, but that means she can't see the future anymore. Now, the masters are super irritated with Paul and Paul's friends, and a riot kicks out in Philippi. So extraordinary thing 
things are happening, but she experiences total transformation. That's miracle number two. She was known across Philippi and her story became known across Philippi. Here's miracle number three. I said there was a riot that broke out. Paul and Silas end up in prison. Now, whilst they're in prison, they do what you wouldn't expect them to do. They start worshipping and singing, not grumbling or moaning. They lift their voices in worship. And whilst they're worshipping, an earthquake hits the prison and the prison doors fling open. All the prisoners do a runner. Now the jailer who's in charge, he wakes up and sees that everyone's done a runner. He knows he's in deep, deep trouble with his bosses. So he pulls out his sword. He's getting ready to kill himself. And Paul steps in and says, slow down, cowboy. This is a paraphrase of the Greek text. Slow down, cowboy. You do not need to do that. Here's a message that will transform your life. He preaches the gospel and the jailer says, my whole household need to hear that story. So Paul says, take me to your household. Paul goes to the household. They all come to faith and are baptized. So the first time they gather as a whole community, you've got Lydia and her entire household. You've got the slave girl who's now experienced liberation and freedom. You've got the jailer and his entire household and no doubt lots and lots of others and people across the city are talking about the earthquake and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a spectacular beginning, agree? Tough crowd. It's a spectacular beginning to the story of the church in Philippi. Now they're going through really challenging times. And Paul says, you've got to remember how the story began. He who began a good work is going to carry it on until the day of Christ Jesus to the point of completion, right? So we have a birth story. It's a little bit different to the story of Philippi, but it is a fairly remarkable story. And I want to give you some of the highlights of the story to celebrate the faithfulness of God. So basically, back in sort of 2008, 2009, B and I, we finished training. Um, I became ordained in the Church of England, became a vicar. And we were asking God, Lord, where do you want us to plant? We'll go anywhere. Now, some of you will have heard the miracle story of how we ended up in King's Cross, living in King's Cross five years before we planted. A family basically said, do you want to live in our home? Like five minutes from King's Cross, a four-bed house. Do you want to live here rent-free for five years? And the answer was yes, we really, really do. But it felt like a moment of God repositioning us and moving us into King's Cross. So by the time we were asking the question, Lord, where are you going to send us? The prayer had kind of shifted. Lord, we'll go anywhere. But honestly, our hearts have been broken for King's Cross. We've fallen in love with King's Cross. So we will go anywhere. But Lord, maybe you're asking us to stay. And the more we leaned into that, the more we sensed the Father saying, exactly. It was a stitch up. I called you into King's Cross because the story's about to unfold. So we gathered a team and we started praying around King's Cross. Now, when you walk to King's Cross now, this is an aerial view of King's Cross. You've got Granary Square and you've got the rest 
restaurants and the bars. Dishoom's my personal favourite. Um, you've got the fountains, you've got the university, you've got the business and retail community. It's incredible. Um, but watch the screen now. Hopefully you're going to enjoy this. As we pull back the curtain, rewinding the clock, 5, 10, 15, maybe 20 years. Back when we began the journey, King's Cross was basically a wasteland with a warehouse. The redevelopment, when you walk around it now, oh my goodness, but 10, 15 years ago, it was a wasteland with a warehouse. Now, Argent, the redevelopers of the site, when they began their redevelopment, it was back in sort of 2008, 2009, during the global financial crisis. When they began the work, people basically said, you've bitten off more than you can chew. You've taken on a multi-billion pound redevelopment at a time of an economic crisis. You're going to humiliate yourselves. So when they marked out the perimeter of their site, literally put a fence around the whole perimeter, and then put this placard on the entrance to their site, which basically read, King's Cross is being delivered. This was their way of saying, we haven't been enough more than we can chew. We're going to deliver the most incredible redevelopment. But as we prayer walked around the site and then stood outside the entrance, it's as if God was speaking over the land, basically saying this area, King's Cross, historically known as a place of deprivation, the red light district, this is going to experience deliverance. King's Cross is going to have its Red Sea moment. God was speaking like the kingdom of God is going to break out in this place. And as we stood there, just felt the spirit moving, inviting us into the story of God. Now, I got super excited. I started researching like the redevelopment of King's Cross and the history of King's Cross. And I ended up watching this documentary uh, made by English Heritage. It was on BBC. Unbelievably boring documentary about how some of the warehouses were going to be reused in the sort of redevelopment process. If you're into buildings, you'd have loved it. Less so for me. But I put myself through 90 minutes of this documentary. And then the CEO of Argent, the redeveloper starts being interviewed about what King's Cross will look like in 10, 15 years' time. In other words, about now. And for the first time in this documentary, someone started to get excited as they dreamt about the future. Watch this little video. Here we finish this development. The rest of London will just be an extension to King's Cross. <laughs> You've got fantastic hotels here, you've got fantastic apartments, you've got schools, you've got old people's homes, you've got medical facilities, you've got theatres, bars, restaurants, church. Watch this space. Hi, we're Pete and B, and we're going to be planting a church here in King's Cross come February 2010. And we just want to share with you a little bit of our vision for the area and for the church. Ooh. There you go. That was our vision video on day one. Noticed he said, there's going to be theatres, bars and restaurants. And the guy says, church? Panic moment. Uh, watch this space, he said. And as I watched that documentary, again, my heart started like pounding. Almost God was saying, like, I'm carving out a space for you and this team to plant a church that's part of the unfolding story of the kingdom breaking out in King's Cross. We were so excited. So we start the church, 14th of February, 2010, Valentine's Day. So those that didn't have a date joined us as we began the story and we cast vision for what was going to lie ahead. And we saw some incredible miracles. 
struggles in those early weeks. I said it was during the global financial crisis. So we were beginning, but we had so little in terms of resources. But week one got an email from someone saying, a friend of mine has heard about the church plant and wants to donate towards it. Can you send some bank details? So we sent some bank details. We get a response saying 50,000 pounds has been transferred into your account. The giver wants to remain anonymous, but it's towards the plant as it gets going. It was one of those moments of like, yes, get in. God does exist. And this church is his idea, not our idea. And he's providing for this new birth, this new plant as it gets going. We saw some crazy things happen. God provided people, some connections, even in terms of buildings. This has been our journey because it it communicates something of the generosity and faithfulness of God. So we start as an office in the spare room of our house, but we outgrow the spare room and we get given 2,000 square foot of office uh, office space, tile yard studios for 18 months. At the end of that time, we get a phone call from a lady in Singapore basically saying she She's part of a group. She owns with others a seven-story office block in King's Cross. They want to redevelop it as part of the wider redevelopment of the area. But it's going to take them three years to get all their plans together. And they've been researching whether some charities can move in so that they can get rate relief on the space. They did a Google search. Charities King's Cross, they found KXC. She gets in touch, basically says, do you want some office space rent-free for three years? Yes, was the answer. And we ended up with 15,000 square foot of office space rent-free. What do you call that? A miracle, like God provision, ridiculous in one of the most expensive parts of the city. After three years, we move out, we become nomadic. It was a really painful moment in the story. And then we find this rundown office space on the market. No one wanted it because it was riddled with asbestos. But we thought, that'll do for us. So we hire some people in to get rid of the asbestos. We begin to redecorate it. And for the last number of years, it's become our home and the home of our co-working and the home of certain ministries that operate out of that space. Incredible provision. The the rent was so small because no one wanted the space. And then very recently, the Church of England have invested to buy this building, King's House. We're investing over half a million to redevelop the space. And hopefully we're going to move in in January 22. Now, there we go. How amazing is that? As I look back at the story, what what do you call that? I call that the faithfulness of God, like miraculous provision. Like it's been a rough couple of years, right? But when we look back, we're reminded of the words of Paul. He who began a good work, like this miraculous provision of, of finances and resource and these prophetic words. He who began a good work, he's going to carry it on to completion. So as we look back, hopefully it, it builds faith so that we can look forward with a sense of anticipation as to what lies ahead. Listen to, to these words from Paul, who basically says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. So he's looking forward and he says this, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I, I've looked back and I'm celebrating the story of how the church began in Philippi. But with that faith, I'm looking forward and I'm pressing on to take hold 
hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Why did Christ Jesus take hold of Paul? Two thoughts come to mind. Number one, relationship, right? Jesus really loved Paul. He's like, I want to be in relationship with you. That's why he pursued you. He wants relationship. But out of that relationship, Jesus says to Paul, I've got a mission for you. You're going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So what you see again and again in this letter is Paul saying, I want to know Christ, verse 10. But more than that, I want to make him known throughout the earth. Like I want relationship, but I want to see other people drawn into this transforming love of Jesus. Incredible. I've totally lost my slides. Here we go. I'm back. I'm back. So there's this sense of Paul basically articulating, God has set me apart for relationship and set me apart for a purpose. And this is how he begins the letter then. He says, Paul and Timothy, they're writing this letter, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people. Now the word holy there literally means set apart. Set apart for a person primarily and set apart for a purpose. That's how Paul begins most of his letters. To the saints in Ephesus. The saints, in other words, holy ones in Philippi. The saints in Corinth. That's who you are. You are holy ones. I love this definition of holiness. We're invited to reimagine holiness, not through the lens of perfectionism, but through the lens of our utter oneness with God. When we talk about holiness, we sometimes lean towards talking about being a really good boy or girl, not misbehaving right. But biblical holiness is so much greater than that. It is utter oneness to God, undivided devotion to Jesus. Everything else follows from that. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. The core of it is loving Jesus, being set apart for the person of Jesus and being set apart for the uh, purposes of Jesus. And because of that, Paul totally reframes what successful living looks like. So again, listen to this, he says to the church in Philippi. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, in other words, imprisonment in Rome, has actually served to advance the gospel. Like, don't feel sorry for me because I've reframed success. It's not a bigger house and more money and a nicer car, right? More cushy living. No, 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 it's not that. It is knowing Christ and making him known. And here I am in prison and on both fronts, I'm winning. On both fronts, I'm winning. He goes on, as a result of me being in prison, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard, in other words, Caesar's household, and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. He's like, I'm in prison, but don't feel sorry. People have developed a courage. Hello, Scout. Great to see you at the front. Um, Developed this passion of communicating the gospel. How challenging is this? The reframing of success. Knowing Christ and making him known, right? So challenging. And then he goes on. He's kind of sharing these reflections. He says, for me... To live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the first time in any of his letters we get the indication of Paul coming towards the end of his life, genuinely beginning to contemplate death. And he says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Win-win. Win-win, right? If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. 
I get to make Christ known in the world. Win. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. In other words, there's a sweeter union with Christ, the other side of death. So if I depart, win. I get to know Christ. And if I stay, win, because I get to make him known throughout the earth. This is Paul reframing what successful kingdom living looks like. So we look back with gratitude, celebrating the faithfulness of God. We look forward with faith. And then the invitation is to act now with generosity. Back to verse one of the whole letter. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people, saints, set apart ones. Then he says, in Christ Jesus, in Philippi, right? You are in Christ Jesus and you are in Philippi. And the two go together. This is Paul articulating citizenship and residency. He says in Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven. Citizenship is basically your belonging, your sense of identity, your purpose. Remember, he's writing this letter to a Roman colony in northern Greece. Like they considered themselves citizens of Rome, walking it out in Philippi. And, and Paul says, uh-uh, you are citizens of heaven. Your identity, your belonging, your purpose is found in Christ, in the heavenly realms you walk out here on earth. Which echoes what Paul said to the church in Ephesians. He says, you're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. You walk it out here on earth. So we are in Christ and we are in Philippi. But let's just explore this citizenship just a little bit further. The Romans were unbelievable at transforming and shaping culture. So if you were a Roman citizen living in northern Greece, here's the three things you were invited into. A change in language, a change in lifestyle, and a change in longings. They forced everyone to speak the language of the Romans Latin. You had to wear togas, right? And more than that, you had to embrace the Roman pantheon of gods. And particularly, you had to embrace emperor worship, declaring Caesar is Lord. They shifted culture through shifting language, lifestyle, Longings. Let me just press into this because we're seeing some incredible shifts in culture right now. And I just want to press into the language shifts that we're experiencing to wave a flag. So to highlight what's really going on. What we're seeing around us now is language from scripture being injected with fresh meaning. And that meaning points to a secular story and not a kingdom story. Right? So we've got to be aware of some of these shifts in language. Can I teach you a very brief lesson in hermeneutics? I know some of you like, no, not, not really, but I'm going to do it anyway. Right? Hermeneutics is how we interpret the text. So how we understand what the text says. Here's how the rabbis used to interpret scriptures. This was one of the rules. It's called the principle of first mention. If you want to know what a word means in scripture, you find the first time it's ever used and that first use begins to dictate its meaning. Let me give you some examples. Freedom. Everyone's talking about freedom these days. How do we define freedom on biblical grounds? Well, you go back to Genesis 2, the first use of the word. And God says, you're free to eat any of the fruit, just not the fruit of that one tree, right? What does that point towards? True freedom, kingdom freedom, biblical freedom is not the absence of boundaries. 
It's having the right boundaries in place. God's boundaries in place. What about love? What's the first use of the word love in scripture? Um, It's Genesis 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac. As God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love. There we go. Thank you so much. Whom you love. And what's that story about? It's about sacrificial love, trusting in the promises and the purposes of God. Love isn't just agreeing with everyone around you affirming everything about how they're living life. Love is laying yourself down in an act of worship and trust in the Father. Incredible. What about justice? The first use of of the word justice in Scripture, Genesis 15. It's the story of God saying to Abraham, like, I know you're struggling to have kids, but I'm going to do something in and through you. You're going to become a father to a nation and and your descendants, they're going to be so numerous. They're going to be like the, the sand on the seashore, right? Which is incredible. And rather than doubting the promise, it says Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. That word righteousness from which we get the word justice. So what is justice? Again, it's trusting in the promises of God, obedience to the commands of God. See, Adam and Eve screwed it up because they took matters into their own hands and they said, look, we want to define good and evil for ourselves." Like what does Abraham do? He trusts that God's plan for good and evil triumphs over any plan we might sort of concoct. And he trusts and believes in God and steps out in obedience. We've just got to be aware of some of these language shifts that are happening around us. So how do we shift culture, language, lifestyle, longings? How can we embrace the kingdom story? Paul basically says then, we need to follow the way of Jesus. And he quotes this stunning hymn, Philippians 2, where it says, Christ Jesus did not consider quality with God something to be snatched, grasped, hold of. Instead, he empties himself and becomes nothing. Kenosis, the Greek word, literally means to empty yourself, to pour yourself out. Taking on the nature of a servant and being found in human likeness, he becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Paul says, here's how you walk this out, right? You basically, you empty yourself, you pour yourself out. And then he says in chapter four of the letter, he says, if you need another example, you got the example of Christ Jesus, but if you need another example, use my life as an example. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And what does he say about himself? Same language. He said, I've been pouring myself out like a drink offering. Pouring myself out, giving everything for this kingdom cause. That's what all-in spirituality looks like. That's what recklessly giving ourselves away really looks like. And this is what the end of the story communicates to us that as we pour ourselves out, we participate in the purposes of God. Now, this is a piece of art by a guy called Ewan Eason, who used to be part of our church family. One of my favorite pieces of art is basically King's Cross covered in gold which is like the Revelation 21 account. As God comes down and makes his dwelling place amongst us and there's no death, no grief, no crying, no pain. It says the streets will be lined with gold. That's our future. That's the future of King's Cross, right? No poverty and no crime. No gangs, no injustice and no inequality. 
No isolation and no homelessness and no mental health challenges, right? Like fully alive in the presence of God, fully alive serving his purposes. Like that's the end of the story. So how can we be all in? I'll land with this. These are four practices that we've basically communicated consistently over the last 11 years. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, was it all leading to this? Yes. Um, Come, belong, serve, give. Come, belong, serve, give, right? So come to church Sunday by Sunday, belong. Don't try and live out your faith in isolation. Walk your faith out in community. Find a place to serve. Follow the way of Jesus who did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Let's come ready to serve one another and let's give financially. Like let's back the church, the vision of the church, not just with our hearts and our minds, but with our wallets. Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. So we want to invite people into the practice of giving. Honestly, in the last sort of 20 plus years of my adult life, these have been the four communal practices that I've built everything upon. Yes, I have personal practices practices of scripture reading and prayer, fasting, because I love fasting. Um, in between meals, I love fasting, big fan. Um, but in terms of communal practices, honestly, for me, it's built on, I go to church, I walk it out in community where I'm known and people are championing my journey towards Christ-likeness. I'm always gonna find a place to serve. And B and I, as a family, we've always tithed, given 10%. Um, And it doesn't need to be 10%, but basically we've given of our finances towards the vision of the church. I honestly don't know if it's possible to be devoted to Jesus and undevoted to the local church. I I just don't think that's, possible the church is the hands and feet of Jesus in the world I don't think it's possible to be devoted to Jesus and undevoted to his cause establishing foretaste of the kingdom of God here and now whilst we await his return when he makes all things new so what is devotion not just to Jesus but to the church look like right if we want to say Jesus we love you and we want to invest in your kingdom project I honestly think it looks like come and belong find a place to serve and give financially and for the last 11 years when we've talked about how do we out this outwork this vision it's always basically led to this point of like here's some very simple communal practices want to invite you into them final thing then how does the letter end final verse Paul says greet all God's people in Christ Jesus the brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings and this is the the killer verse all God's people here send you greetings especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Now you've got to get the weight of that. Paul's in prison in Rome, the nerve center of the empire, the place where people worship Caesar. And when he says goodbye, he says, everyone sends greetings, but just so you know, particularly people in Caesar's household at the nerve center of the empire, as Paul is all in, recklessly giving himself away, People are coming to faith in Jesus and the ripple effects are huge. Across the Roman Empire, people are boldly proclaiming the gospel. People are coming to faith in Jesus. And Paul says like, you've got just to be 
all in. Like, remember your story. He who began a good work, he's going to carry it on to completion. You've got to look forward with the lens of faith. God's doing something remarkable. The best days are ahead of us. And in this moment, we act now with generosity. That's what all in spirituality looks like. Should we stand?